Song number 179. We've been invited to make a mark of that, and we'll look forward to using that later in our service tonight. And as always, we continue to be mindful and rather thankful that God has seen fit to bless us with the things in our life that are such that they permit us to assemble and to gather in this way. And in fact, you and I look forward to magnifying the name of the God who loved us. And tonight we're going to do that by virtue of, again, some questions and answers. You may notice on this next slide, which is a very generic one in many ways, you and I have the absolute conviction that these questions and answers are pertinent because we believe that the Bible is, in fact, the inspired Word of God and that it does provide answers to the questions that you and I often have. It certainly is fair to say that as we look at these questions tonight, we're again going to be such that it's ones that have been presented to me by virtue of what's in that box out there in the foyer. And as always, if there are other questions, I might suggest you put uh, make a little note. You don't have to sign your name to it. Simply put it in that box, and I'll try to make use of that as, as, as we come to some additional lessons on these questions and answers. As always, I like to try to word it in exactly the way that the person did, so that if there's any misunderstanding, it's not the person's fault, it's mine. And so with that said, here's the first question that you and I have been invited to consider this evening. Some passages, such as Genesis 32.30 and Genesis 33.10, state that someone saw God's face. Other passages, such as 1 John 4.12, indicate that no one has seen God's face. Please explain. And I think we can easily appreciate that there are indeed some verses in the Word of God which indicate that God's face was seen. In fact, that's the very word that's used. And there are other verses that talk about no one at any time has ever seen God's face. And so the individual has asked that we give some thought to, is this a contradiction? And if not, then what does the Bible mean by these two statements that read like this? I might invite you to begin with what you see at the top of that slide. Aren't we invited to note that God is spirit? More than once in the Bible, that's highlighted, including both Old and New Testament. And yet we see in John 4, 24, God is a spirit. And so, having that observation, you and I then shouldn't expect that with the unaided eye in this physical flesh, that we'd be able to see a spirit being like God. Almost immediately, we should anticipate that there should be several factors that go into this. Why don't we start in Exodus 33. Near the end of that chapter, we learn somewhat in light of a, a request that Moses made. He, has a de, he had a desire to see firsthand, to experience directly the fullness of God's glory. And God told him something in verse number 20. He directly said, No man, no man can see my face and live. No man can appreciate the fullness of the glory expressive of the God of heaven and live. It would seem that God rather directly said that the absolute fullness and brilliance of His nature would be such that in this flesh, no one could behold that and survive. Now, you and I remember He made accommodations for Moses. He, you might remember, hid him in a cleft of the rock and passed by, and He, in fact, covered with His hand certain aspects of that brilliance and allowed Moses to see some essences of his hinder or backside. But in that light, we certainly learn something rather dramatic, that the fullness of God's being 
is beyond the capacity of mortals, at least in this form, to appreciate it in its absolute glory. But all that does is beg us to consider some of those other verses. Then what do those verses mean that do state that someone saw God's face and the person that wrote the question was exactly on point to bring to our appreciation Genesis 32.30? You may notice on that slide that again I've asked you to notice in that particular set of verses, Jacob said he had seen God's face. What did he mean by that? And later on, Job said he had seen God's face in Job 42, verses 5 and 6. That's just two of some verses. Could I invite us to reflect a bit on those two passages at least and draw some conclusions that could be of benefit and that could be very helpful to us? First of all, could we not agree that in the greatness of God, He could thus conceal and take a form in which mankind would be able to see some facet of his being. Not the fullness of it, admittedly, but some facet of it, some aspect of it. In fact, is it not true that that's what apparently took place in Genesis 32? In fact, in verses 24 and following of that chapter, you may recall the scene wherein Jacob wrestled with a man. Now the text says he did this over the course of the evening and Jacob soon came to have you know, part of his joint that was out of socket. But in the aftermath of that wrestling match, you may recall that Jacob himself said that he had seen God's face. Now notice the text says that God had taken in some aspect the form of a man. So here was someone that Jacob could see. It was someone with whom he wrestled over the course of the evening. It was someone who had the attributes of mankind. Now you and I learn it was a matter connected to the representative, the appearance, if you please, of the God of heaven. But yet Jacob made the assertion he'd seen God's face. This was a representative of God. And yet Jacob interpreted it in the way that you and I have read in those verses that close that chapter. Could I not say the same thing in many ways was true of Job? You recall the scene wherein Job had suffered mightily as that book began, and then in the whole host of chapters that followed, he had conversation with friends. Many times their understandings were not exactly correct. And yet, Job defended himself, understanding that he had given himself to a service of God, and he just simply had a hard time understanding and yet, as the book closed in chapter 42, after the nature of God's questioning, it was those questions. It was that conversation that God, in fact, challenged him by, that he used that to say he had appreciated and perceived by seeing the face of God. Now, there you'll notice that he had seen God's face, not directly, but he had seen it by virtue of the appearance God gave of truth the nature of those questions and what they allowed him to understand. And he had used the word see in connection to the very nature of God and His being in His face. First thing I might do is then invite all of us to be mindful that sometimes when the Word of God uses statements like this, it uses it representatively. It's not that the person directly saw the brilliance and glory of God, but saw something representative of God. Perhaps it was an angel. Perhaps it was something connected to the revelation of the gospel. Perhaps it was something about the nature of God's being. 
but the person stated it in a way that brought them to claim that it was in such representation that they had seen the face of God. May I say, when it's written that way, the Word of God is using accommodative language. As you journey forward on that slide with me, I believe it's time to look at that last verse the person mentioned in the question, 1 John 4, 12. Would you turn with me near the end of that little book of 1 John and listen to a rather direct, if I could use that adjective, statement that John made on that occasion. <clears throat> John rather abruptly writes that no man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected in us. And suddenly in the midst of this presentation, <clears throat> the inspired writer John pointed out that at the time of his writing, now notice, he didn't give us a time stamp that up until the time of the Lord's resurrection or up until the time of the Lord's crucifixion. John lived far after the time, you see, in which Jesus was crucified, far after the moment of his ascension. And yet at that time, no one had still ever seen the face of God. I would use that to remind each of us to be a bit cautious. You and I know that we live in a world wherein at least a common thought is that when so-and-so dies, he's in heaven and able to see the face of God. That can't be right. It can't be right. At the time John wrote, no human being in any form had ever seen the face of God. That's what he said. That means when you and I pass from the scenes of this life, it's not as if we're transported right into heaven and are able at that moment to be in the very presence of God and appreciate direct conversation with Him, seeing Him face to face. It must not be that way. But rather, you and I know, there is this place of Hades, this Hadean realm, whereas departed spirits go there. And there they remain until the day of judgment, wherein the Lord Jesus will return, Hades is emptied, then at the time of the judgment, those blessed by favorable obedience will then be allowed to be there the place where the God of heaven is. And then they'll be able to see His face. But isn't it interesting that that statement that John made, really it only joins the discussion that Jesus had presented in John chapter 1, verses 17 and following. As you and I close that particular slide, could we not then say that quite frankly, you and I needed, need to be fitted for eternity. Again, you and I, to recognize the presence of God and to be in His presence, we have to be fitted with such a body and form so that immortality is ours. There will be no more death. Everything will be exactly right, directed toward the absolute appreciation of eternity. And that's the teaching of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 to 58. The first question has been an interesting one that asks us to think about seeing God's face, not seeing His face. And I hope that we've given some justice to the various ways those verses are intended and what they share with us in context. What about question two? This next question reads as follows. Is it scriptural for a Christian to place membership at the congregation they attend? If so, is there a reasonable time for this to happen? That's another good question. What about the placing of membership? 
I've invited you to step through some of the matters on this next slide that invite us to think about this, using again the Word of God as our motivating factor. First of all, we should be quick to say that obedience to the gospel is what brings one into membership in the church. And so first of all, might we take note, when the person mentioned placing membership, I think I know what the person meant, but I just wanted to qualify a little bit of that so that we're aware of those details as we begin. First of all, as a person obeys the gospel in baptism, Jesus adds that person to this universal organization called the church. Doesn't matter what country, doesn't matter what locale, none of that makes any particular difference. The Lord adds that person to the church. But then, I think the person is asking us about local church membership. The Church of Christ in the Pippin community of Putnam County. The Church of Christ in, say, the Liberty community. The Church of Christ in various and sundry other locales. What about placing membership locally? Some of the next points on that slide will direct us to think about it this way. It is entirely right, based on the Word of God. And it's expected by God that an individual associate him or herself to a local congregation of the Lord's people. If you want to call that placing membership, that's fine. But in so doing, let's make sure we appreciate it the way that this is in fact noted. So is it the will of God that someone, a person, a Christian, join in affinity to a particular local congregation? Absolutely. Let's look at that text in Acts chapter 9. That was the lesson text that I selected for this lesson tonight, thinking that it could be a great benefit to us to reflect on no less than the Apostle Paul himself. In Acts chapter 9, you and I encounter a rather dramatic scene of events. You remember as the chapter began, Paul, really he was known as Saul at that time, but here was one who was so opposed to the church and to Christianity. In fact, he had letters in his possession that allowed him to, in fact, go to Damascus and to wreak havoc on the lives of those that were Christians, to imprison them, to, in fact, hail them before the authorities. And yet on that road to Damascus, a bright light shone round about him. And you and I recall he had a conversation with no less than Jesus the Christ himself. You might recall in verse 6, he said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And so here was one who before, and in fact just a couple of verses before, had been so antagonistic to the truth, so antagonistic to the Christ, so antagonistic to the church, and now suddenly, my life is open. What will you have me to do? You and I recall he was told, you're going into Damascus. He was blind, however, at that point. And yet he went into the city. And it was told, it will be told you what you must do. Isn't that interesting? Not what you ought to think about doing, not what you ought to consider, but what you must do. And so sure enough, Ananias came to him and said, Saul, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Here was thus a gentleman, Ananias, who directly told Saul, you need to be baptized. What are you waiting for? So belief alone was not satisfactory he believed in the Lord. He had just talked to him. He clearly had repented because he fasted for three days. 
but there was something else he lacked. He had not come into Christ yet, and it was told, you need to get busy and be baptized. And so it was that he did. What happened to Saul after he was baptized? Could I invite you to note some of the language that appears? May I direct your attention in Acts chapter 9, verse number 18. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples, which were at Damascus, and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Here's a man, it seems right after his baptism, you notice that he had received strength and he immediately set about the task of preaching the beautiful message of the Christ. And the way that's worded, it says straightway. Immediately he began to proclaim this beautiful message. Now in that light, could I ask, what else does the text say he did? That now brings us to verse 26. It says... And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, so remember, he had been at Damascus, and now he made the journey to Jerusalem. And it says he essayed to join himself to the disciples. Now, when he came to the city of Jerusalem, did he, in fact, proceed to labor in the kingdom as a bit of a lone ranger? Did he proceed to remain somewhat individualistic in his efforts? Absolutely not. It says he essayed to join himself to the disciples. Remember, there was already a congregation of the Lord's people at Jerusalem. Saul sought to join himself and affiliate himself with that group of disciples, if you wish to call it place membership. At least for a limited time, that's apparently what he did. He wanted to be identified with them so that his efforts could be seen to be consistent with theirs. There's a sense in which that greatly encourages unity, doesn't it? I am with them, I am a part of them, and their efforts are what I am pursuing. It gives the impression, you see, of a strongness of unity in that regard, but Saul joined himself to those brethren, those disciples that were in Jerusalem. As you give thought to that text that's before you, what about the teaching in the Roman letter? In Romans chapter 12, verse number 10, May I simply read that set of verses to you? It's rather brief, but Romans chapter 12, verse number 10. It says, Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not, rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Among the matters that Paul discussed here, he seemingly identified a particular group. You prefer one another. Well, how am I supposed to know who to prefer unless there's a recognized statement of identity in light of that congregation, who is a member of it and who is not? If I'm to prefer one another, we need to have a knowledge of who is it that's being preferred. You can begin to see there seems to be a description of a distinction there is a recognized set of members in this local body. I identify with them. I encourage their efforts and faithfulness just as they encourage mine. It might well be that the next element on the slide is a, in many ways as strong, if not stronger, than these. Would you give thought with me for a moment 
to the perspective of an elder. May I again say the perspective of an elder. We all understand that elders are given the local oversight of a local congregation of the Lord's people. And I use that word for that's in essence what Peter used. Did he not say in 1 Peter 5 verse 2, taking the oversight thereof, and he pointed out that it was that local consideration, that local congregation that, that in fact he had in mind. The particular wording reads like this, feed the flock of God which is among you. It's not a flock in some distant faraway place. It's this flock among you. But now what does that elder, what is he told to do? Feed them. How does he know who to feed? Is this person a member of the flock? Is this person I'm supposed to oversee or not? How else is he to know this unless they have placed membership? Remember, the elder is such that he is told that he has the oversight of some people. Who are they? May I say, the only way I can think of for him to know is for them to have let him know, listen, it is my intent to work in this congregation beneath your oversight. And if they don't let him know that, how is he to know? He can't read their mind. It's not that he by some means is supposed to be given a vision. The way in which he knows is that they have communicated to him that we are a part of that congregation. And it is our intent to submit to your authority as elder and to labor under the oversight which you provide. As you think about that character slide, then, is it the right thing to do for someone to place membership in a congregation? Absolutely. The person also asks, if there is that to be the case, then what's a reasonable time frame for that to happen? As far as I know, the Bible is silent on that one. Paul was fairly quick about it. Notice that he no sooner got to Jerusalem that he essayed to place that membership. He essayed to join himself to them. Certainly in the interest of what seems reasonable, I can only say that we all know how important the church is. It seems a bit odd to think that someone, their family might move into a community and they might well attend a place for 8, 10, 12 years, never place any membership. That seems not only unwise, it seems inconsistent with the teaching of the Bible. If the church is that vital, meaning that I can't be saved without it, Ephesians 5.23, it would seem that one would wish to join that affinity as soon as is practical so that you can begin to labor beneath the oversight of those elders and to push forward the boundary of the Lord's work in that community. Again, it just seems as if it wouldn't be an extraordinarily long period of time certainly time enough to learn about the important matters to that congregation, that they uphold that which is the truth. But once those questions are answered, it seems as if the placing of the membership, the efforts along that line, would take place fairly soon. What about question three? The third question, according to their ability, should all men take part in the duties of the church they attend? That's another good question. As always, the questions are exceedingly rich, and that continues to be the case with this one. To word it again as the person did, according to their ability, should all men take part in the duties of the church that they attend? My presumption would be that there are certain qualifications that go with the word men in that, and we'll try to develop some of them 
in light of the, the answer I have at least suggested to you, the first thing I would offer is that opening statement on that slide. First of all, all Christians, not only men, but all Christians are expected to use their abilities, their duties in light of service to the Lord in the capacity that they can. And so near the top of that slide, I've listed a host of verses that all remind us about the nature of work in the kingdom of the Lord. In Mark 13, 34, not long before the Lord was crucified, you might recall that statement encouraging one and all relative to the work of each in the kingdom. So it's not the work of a selected few. It's the work according to ability of each in the kingdom. Beyond all of that, in Acts 13, 2, Paul and Barnabas noticed that the Holy Spirit was such that hands were laid upon them, and the Holy Spirit called them for the work that they were thus expected to do. Might each of us give thought to, here was the work of the Spirit, and these two proceeded on a rather lengthy missionary journey that would take them a long, long way from the place where they then were. But it was clearly according to what God knew they could do. That text in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, listen to the beauty of that one. Isn't it true that each of us are encouraged along this line? We're always to be abounding in the work of the Lord. Abounding, never being, of course, moved aside from that which is the truth of God. But let each one be abounding in the work of the Lord. The next two that I've asked you to consider in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8, a reminder about the abundance connected to our works in the kingdom. And finally, Philippians 2 verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So you see, that's not just directed to a selected few. It isn't directed only to elders or only to deacons or only to others selected few, but work out your own salvation, that certainly includes all of us, each one of us. And so now, what about this? The question asks, what about men? I would suppose the person intended to convey the thought of Christian men. So a person who has obeyed the gospel, does God expect that man to then use his talents in the overall service of the church? Sure he does. In fact, in 1 Peter 4, verse 10, we're told, As each one has received the gift, may he use that in the work of the ministry. Now clearly, that's a strong statement of individuality, as each has received the gift. Whatever gift the Lord has provided to that gentleman, it's to be expected he will use that in the appropriate way, relative to, of course, the service of the church. Even beyond that, isn't it something to reflect upon the one-talent man of Matthew 25? We all understand that the actual earthly story involved money. That's what a talent was. It was a piece of money. But the heavenly meaning involves uh, in us the consideration those talents are representative of our capacities, our abilities, otherwise the capabilities that are ours. The one-talent man didn't use his. He hid it. So here was a particular skill and yet it wasn't used. Doesn't that encourage each of us to ask, what will the Lord have me to do? What is it He's equipped me to do? And thus to ensure that we use those matters in light of our service in the Lord's church. That certainly includes gentlemen. Thus, may I say, 
if the elders approach you or me and ask us, would you do this? We ought to be a little bit slow to immediately refuse it. That is to say, if there's a program that the elders have in mind, could I be a force to help bring that about for good? Could it be that I might use a skill set that they have appreciated in me that might help to bring that work to a reality? It's certainly something to consider, isn't it? If an elder approaches or and asks, would you teach a class? Would you assist in the teaching of a class? Maybe we ought to think about this before we're quick to say, I can't. Is it really that we can't? Or we would just rather not to? It is something to consider, isn't it? Isn't it true that in that light, the person is asked, should it be expected that that would be true of men? Surely it's so. But may I say it's also true for women. Again, they are individuals too that have been granted opportunities and blessings. Now we understand there are certain restrictions on what a woman can do in public service in a mixed assembly. We understand that. We're not offering any thought in contradiction to that. But certainly there are works that a woman can do, certain classes that she can teach, certain other works to which she certainly might be such that her skill set would be very amenable. The question was, should all men take part as their skill will allow? Absolutely. May I say that what a great example that is. The eyes of those that are younger watching this gentleman and it may be that it's not the most comfortable thing in the world for him to stand before a group and lead a prayer or lead singing or otherwise be engaged in the service of the church, but to see him committed enough to the Lord to try and to work toward that eventuality, it could be a very meaningful thing to himself as well as others that might well witness it. That particular question has been a direct one along that line. What about question four? This fourth question is a bit more involved in the sense of the nature that, that it does set before us. So let me read it, and then we'll try to do our justice with it. Please explain Romans 5, verse 14. Is this where some religions or denominations believe we carry Adam's sin? I'd like to read Romans 5, verses 12 to 14 especially, and then return to that question. In that text, the, the Apostle Paul put it like this, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Now I'll stop there, though it seems to me that's not really the full end of the discussion, but at least we may start our conversation about this. There have been those, and it may well be a reasonable assertion, that that's the single most difficult passage in all of the Roman letter. I wouldn't disagree with that, I confess, but nonetheless... In it, we know God has in it truth for us to appreciate and truth for us to understand. He doesn't give us things we can't understand. Romans chapter 5, as you reach that point of it, why don't we just take verses 12 and following and step through them somewhat slowly, but not so slowly that we miss the point. 
Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world. Who's this one man by whom sin entered into the world? We know that's Adam. The characteristic efforts of Adam as revealed in the book of Genesis. In fact, you'll notice that's clarified in verse 14. The word Adam appears twice. So we know Paul has reference to, in his mind, taking us back to the scene in the Garden of Eden, when sin entered the world. Now you and I should take note that Adam's transgression was not the first sin, right? The devil, if you and I would call him so at that time, he chose to sin before Adam did. And remember, he was cast out. The book of Jude tells us somewhat about that. So it's not that Adam's sin was the first sin. In fact, his sin wasn't even the first sin on earth. Eve had sinned before him. right? She had taken the fruit, and she then gave to Adam, and he partook of it. Her sin was before his. The point that Paul's making is Adam's sin was not the first sin. But what he's drawing is basically comparison. He's setting up on the one hand teaching relative to Paul, I'm sorry, teaching relative to Adam, and teaching relative to Christ. In fact, he's going to emphasize that point in great detail shortly. But let's go back to verse 12 and now read a little further. Wherefore, as by one man sinned into the world, and death by sin. So the punishment that God sent forth had to do, you and I remember, with death. And it came about this way. Adam no longer had access to the tree of life. There was a tree in the garden, the fruit of which, as one partook of it, they could live forever in the flesh. That's the teaching of Genesis 3, 22 to 24. And after they sinned, God forced them out of the garden and no longer allowed them access into the garden. In fact, there were cherubims and a flaming sword that protected the way of the tree of life so that they no longer had access to it. No longer having access to it, the time came that Adam died, Eve died. You get the idea. In fact, you may notice that nobody had access to that tree of life anymore. On earth, Adam's children didn't. His grandchildren didn't. Any number of generations after him no longer had access to that tree of life, for they were cast out of the garden, and that access at that point was denied. That means the sentence of death came upon all. But let's be quick to observe this. We ought not pass it too quickly, for verse 12 goes on to say, And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So death will come to me, but Randy has sinned. And death will come to you, but you have sinned. For all have sinned to come short of the glory of God. So we can't lay all of this on Adam. I chose to sin just like he did. Now, the similitude of my sin might not be the same as his, but it's sin nonetheless. And thus the sentence of death comes upon all in that way because isn't it still true the wages of sin is death? Romans 6, 23. Let's now go to verse 13. At this point, may I make this observation. There is a rather extensive parenthetical section to this chapter. The first thing you see in verse 13 is a left parenthesis. You might have to look to find the right parenthesis. How far does this parenthetical expression go? You'll not find it till the end of verse 17. Verses 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 are a lengthy parenthetical aside. 
where Paul is elaborating on the truth he's just now presented. I wonder what he is saying. Again, we won't step through this in, in all the detail that it might deserve, but could we at least make a few brief observations? Verse 13, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. The Romans, of course, had a great connection to what they thought was the law of Moses. You and I know the law of Moses wasn't given until Exodus chapter 20. What about all those years prior to Exodus 20 when people like Abraham was alive and folks like Noah and folks even like Adam? The point that Paul quickly makes is in verse 13, there was sin in the world before the law of Moses ever was given. But he's quick to point out, sin is not imputed when there is no law. There had to be law in order for there to be sin. And so to say that Adam sinned is to say there was a law of God that was applicable at that time. In fact, it's ever been the case that every human being is subject to an appropriate law of God. What about verse 14? Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. In that period of time prior to the giving of the law of Moses, death is still that which reigned. Even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. In other words, somebody may have been guilty of sin, but it may have been nothing like the sin of Adam, and yet they still died. So you didn't have to commit exactly the sin of Adam in order to be those who would die, but it was any sin. And so indeed, who is the figure of him that was to come. And here Paul makes this dramatic statement of likeness. On the one hand was Adam. Sin was introduced into the world in part by his efforts. And now there's Christ. The removal of sin came about due to his efforts, the life that he lived and the death that he died. Notice Adam is said to be the figure. He's the type. Jesus is the antitype. And if I could read the next few verses... Paul highlights that like this, but not as the offense, so also as the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if... By one man's offense, death reigned by one. Much more, they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. You see the comparison of the one? He's highlighting the entrance of sin, but not blaming it all on Adam. It's the choice of man to sin, and everybody does it. But the choice of Jesus and the life offered through him is that which can bring forgiveness from sin regardless of what particular kind it may be. And notice he highlights, Then the righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Verse number 17. Therefore, verse 18, As by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, that's Jesus, of course, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. 
I suspect the person who wrote the question may well have had in mind verse 19 as well as a part of verse 14. Again, the person I ask, is this where some denominations or religious groups teach that we carry Adam's sin? Yes, this is exactly where they supposedly get it. But remember, we each are judged individually. I'm not judged because of what Adam did. And neither are you. Nobody is. Adam made his mistakes. And due to his choice in sin, you and I know that sentence of death came. But all of us are guilty of that choice of sin like he was. Thankfully, Jesus Christ, the antitype, came. And we could enjoy the free gift offered by his blood. And you and I could be justified by faith in his blood, Romans 5 verse 1. And in so doing, enjoy the justification that offers, Romans 5 verse 9. At that point, let's conclude that particular slide, and let's conclude our lesson tonight. Four questions have been ours, and one by one, as we have thought about each of these, they've involved seeing God, they've involved considerations about placing membership, they've involved Romans chapter 5, and the essence of inheriting sin, and even the use of our abilities in light of the work in the church. All these questions have been very good ones and profound ones, and we're always thankful for those who have asked them. Tonight, what about extending the Lord's invitation? We spoke about church membership as a part of the second of those questions. Tonight, the Lord would love to add anybody to His church that would need to be added to it tonight. But that means obedience to the gospel. Believing in Jesus, repenting of your sins, confessing His name and being baptized... But by the same token, someone who perhaps has been faithful at some time, but as of tonight, the direction in life is a bit amiss. Oh, how Jesus would so much lovingly invite you back. That free gift of which we just now read, don't you want to enjoy that again? Don't turn your back upon that. If you would make confession of those errors, make repentance of them, it'd be our joy and delight tonight to pray to God on your behalf and make invitation that, again, you could enjoy that place of righteousness and fidelity to, to the faithful service of the Lord. Tonight, if we could be of assistance, Brother Joy has chosen a song of encouragement. If we could be of some help, won't you come while we stand and sing?